I've been leading in the church for about 20 years now, and I would say one of the most beneficial leaps forward that this generation of the church has taken is the ongoing public discussion on the corrosive effect of mental and emotional health on our souls and on society writ large. You know, issues that were once dismissed in the church with simple admonitions to, well, you should just pray more about that. Troubles and pain, complications and confusion would be addressed by church members of, well, you should study your Bible more. These oversimplified reactions to people's emotional and mental lack of well-being, those issues in this generation of the church are now being explored with clinical and theological attention to detail and real concern, real recognition, real awareness that the brokenness of our mental physiology needs attention. And so this morning, I wanted to give us a little bit of a caveat, a heads up. We are going to orbit around a, sensitive, a very sensitive area for some of us. Anxiety and depression, a general unceasing sense of melancholy and malaise. For some, these feel like inescapable prisons that we long to be free from. And I don't want this particular teaching in this passage to be misinterpreted as trite and dismissive. Our psyches and our souls, they are very, very complex realities. And Jesus, our King and our Creator, He knows this. Jesus is not trite with us. He is not dismissive of the complex issues that we face in our brokenness, be they first world problems or third world problems. The following exhortations from John 14, 1 through 3, they are only one part of an overall lifelong process that our Creator engages in us with to bring us to fullness of flourishing, to bring us to true happiness and joy and peace. And so with that little caveat, that little front end, what I'd like us to do is start this morning with a brief, introspective, contemplative moment. If you would, reflect on this question with me. What is troubling you right now? Just try to put some details to it. Now, for some of you, you are in a situation where it leaps to the fore of your mind, accompanied by some tears welling up in your eyes. The pain is so real right now. The circumstance is so overwhelming. You're like, that's what's troubling me. For some of us, it's hidden under layers of whatever. So we have to think about it a little bit. What is troubling me right now? And as you try to pinpoint this in your mind, add some details to it. And then I would even invite you to, if you can, discern when you think about what's troubling you, where do you feel it in your body? Does your shoulders tense up, a load weighing down on you? Is there some tightness in the chest? Maybe it's deep down in the guts, that belly feeling of, oh, this is hurting, this is bothering, this is uncomfortable. And so as you think about what's troubling you right now, whether it's the global plague or the social chaos of this last year and whatever 2021 decides to throw at us, or our personal issues, we all as humans are living in the fulfillment of Jesus of Nazareth's prophecy. In this world, you will have trouble. Trouble of heart is a universal experience. And our trouble, to discern where it comes from, we need to recognize 
that the discomfort, the pain, the depression, the anxiety, the trouble of heart that we all experience comes from a threat that we perceive coming against our identity or our security. Under our anxiety and malaise and melancholy is the belief that we might lose or we may never gain something that we have deemed as ultimate for our flourishing. And so things like our security, our sense of value and worth, peace, joy, contentment, these are all God-created and God-given things. But when we seek to secure these things by means other than God, we are plagued with a constant low-grade panic. The 13th century mystic, somewhat controversial mystic, Meister Eckhart, he said, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, the fear that we feel as humans comes from our love and devotion to things that are losable. <laughs> Pain occurs when we give our heart to created things that can be lost or fail us instead of giving our hearts to God alone who cannot be lost and will never fail us. This is the plight of a pain-filled fallen humanity separated from their creator. Now, a little bit of science for us this morning, because science is real, as all the yard signs say. I have no clue why those yard signs have to say that. <laughs> biophysically, biophysically, when we are threatened, our physiology, when we are threatened, our bodies, they automatically respond. These unconscious reactions to threat, physical threat around us are called, this is called our fight, flight, or freeze response. So when we see a tiger, our bodies unconsciously and automatically go into a particular state. The technical jargon is the sympathetic state. Our bodies are flooded with cortisol and endorphins. We are ready for action in an instant. And in our modern age, we are still being chased by tigers all through our days. Our brain does not care if it's a deadly predator, if it's a fear of financial loss, if it's our terrifying news feed, our brain doesn't care if it's the stress of political or racial or social splintering. These are all metaphorical cultural tigers that are troubling our souls. And we unconsciously and automatically react to these things. Our automatic fight, flight, freeze responses, they are in full operation every single day. They just look different than what we would expect. We moderns, we mitigate the threats of these metaphorical cultural tigers by unintentionally and unconsciously falling into patterns of striving, distracting, or resigning. Okay? So we fight. We fight by overworking, spending sleepless nights, strategizing, and hustling hard to fight off any threats to our security. Or we flee. We escape into these addictive patterns of social media, technology, pornography, workaholism, alcoholism, and a whole host of chemical abuses. Or we freeze. We resign ourselves to a paralyzed hopelessness that eats away at our joy and numbs our souls with apathy and this incessant cynicism that we swim in. And Jesus here in the farewell discourses, in his departing words to his beloved disciples, gives the remedy, or part, I should say, of the remedy to our troubled hearts. Jesus knew inherently broken humans and our automatic unconscious responses to trouble of heart. He knew that anxiety-driven strife and distraction and resignation 
would not enable his friends to carry out and carry on his mission in the world. And so here in his farewell discourses, he did two specific things to calm his people down and to get them focused. For you note takers, he commanded and he promised. That's it. Two big points for the day. He commanded and he promised. Let's talk about his command, because his command was very straightforward and rather uncomplicated. He literally says to his disciples, don't be troubled, trust. Now, it's important, I think, that we take a moment here and wrestle a little bit with this command language. When Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled, in the Greek, that's in what we call the imperative form, in the imperative form. That is the form of command. This wasn't a mere suggestion on the part of our king. This wasn't a, well, maybe you should try this. His disciples are being troubled by his departing words. He's using this cryptic, confusing language about death and cross. and what is, They're being troubled, and Jesus commands them, do not let your hearts be troubled. And I would say, of all the commands that Jesus gave, his admonitions to not worry, those are the ones that, to me at least, experientially seem the most ludicrous and impossible to obey. <laughs> Jesus, my friends, was not a modern-day therapist. Try as we may to fit him into that mold. You know, I, I think that oftentimes in our prayer times, we envision sitting down with Jesus. He asks us with the perfect tone of voice, what's troubling you, son? What's troubling you, daughter? And then we together explore the layers of our lives where trauma has done its destructive work. And Jesus listens with deep empathy. And all of the counsel and the wisdom that he gives is so incisive and so insightful. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I don't want to seem like I'm mocking here because good therapists are actually a gift to the body of Jesus. I have benefited more from therapy than many, many other forms of discipleship in my life. And Jesus does indeed operate in a therapeutic capacity at certain points. In fact, he's called, he was prophesied to be the good counselor, the beautiful counselor. But not in the text we're meditating in this morning. He's not a therapist in this text, friends. The disciples are troubled and he says, stop being troubled. Don't do that. Now, read this way, Jesus feels so curt so lacking compassion, but we cannot misunderstand the most compassionate being who's ever existed on this earth. Jesus is not being calloused. He's not cruel. He's not unfeeling. He's not telling us to just buck up and toughen up. And he's certainly not parroting the flimsy platitudes of our culture. Don't worry. Just be happy. I mean, we all know how annoying that song is. It doesn't work. That's not what Jesus is doing here. The only reason Jesus would command us as his disciples in such a curt and seemingly callous way is if there is something we can actually do. We can obey this command. In our society, feelings, emotions bear absolute authority and determine reality. For the New Testament communities, Jesus bears absolute authority, and he determines reality for us. And so this command, in one sense, is a loving break on the runaway trains of our psychological and emotional experiences. Now, most of us, at least for myself, I often think, well, emotions, they're crazy. They're unstoppable. 
They're powerful. For those of you that are familiar with the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 8, which feels like walking around as a volcano held down by a paper napkin. That's the way that my life feels all the time. And so it's easy for me to believe that Jesus' commands are so curt and uncompassionate when actually he says otherwise to me through the command, Dan, there is something else you can do. You can exercise emotional self-control. Last year, I went through a very thorough and professional leadership assessment. These guys were top-notch. It was excellent, excellent. And at the end of it, I received a detailed review, of course, of all my strengths and then areas of growth. Now, as I've said, volcano held down by a paper napkin. That is Dan. And so I tend to process everything. And I mean every, everything is huge. And that obviously showed up in this three-day intensive assessment with these professionals couple clinical, uh, clinical psychiatrists. It was awesome. But one line from their assessment, one line from their assessment was so offensive and so absolutely liberating. All it said was exercise emotional self-control. One line. And I read it and I was like, what? Volcano goes off. And then I was like, wait. There was no empathy. It was an objective observation from highly trained professionals and an exhortation from them. And I'm telling you, over time, it became an epiphany for me. It was like being given permission to exercise self-control and then being given the belief that that would actually be a good thing that I could do and that I should do. Culturally, we are swimming in anxiety. And then we are trained culturally to feel it all and express it all, lest our heads explode off of our bodies. For us, authenticity equals emotional impulsivity. I'm just gonna say that again so that the airplane doesn't wash it out. For us, when it comes to our emotions, we believe that authenticity equals emotional impulsivity. And Jesus says to us as his communities, Stop doing that. Stop doing that. Now, I want you to stay with me. Jesus knows that this is not easy. My dear friend, he knows how badly you have longed to be from this anxiety, to be freed from it. He knows that your depression has lingered on month after month, year after year without relief. What I want to propose to you this morning is not an embittered, cynical, fight, flight, freeze, resign to hopelessness, automatic response. I want you to understand that his command is an important piece of this puzzle to finding peace in this life. Because Jesus' command works like a break. It slows us down. It causes us to consider deeply, okay, Jesus commands me to not let my heart be troubled. I'm a follower of him. What is it that's troubling me? What are under the layers of my anxiety? What what is being threatened right now that only God can satisfy? Where am I holding a tiger by the tail and it's actually just a vapor? Do I, Jesus' command really brings this question to the surface. Do I believe I can obey what God says and walk in peace? And I want you to hear this. At Neighbors, we don't do anything off of a five-year strategy. We're like long game. We're working off of a five-generation strategy. 
We say this all the time. I want to see some of your great-great-grandkids get, na- get married in this community. I, I want to see your great-great-great-great-grandchildren buried by pastors that are raised up in this community generations from now. Long game. Jesus' commands, they do not cure us in a single moment. In a single moment. Discipleship. And the development of a deep heart lived in the peace of Jesus is a lifelong process of disciplined practices that over time affect transformation of the soul. And Jesus expects us as his community to grow in emotional self-control and to exercise greater trust in him. He literally says, again, the Greek here is kind of complicated, but it's basically... Most of the Greek guys I was reading would say that the imperative is what he's saying here. You believe in God, believe also in me, verse 2. More simply said, don't be troubled. Trust God. Trust me. To trust is to intentionally focus all of our heart, mind, body, and soul on the one who made everything, including you. On the one who declares he has all power and the one who says he is in perfect control and who loves us so greatly that he would die in our place as our substitute and resurrect as our champion. This is the one that he says, trust. And we must decide to trust him. What Jesus' command, turn from trouble, trust God, trust me, what it initiates is a series of mental choices and decision of our will. The great beauty of being image bearers is that we have a part in the process of salvation. We actually partner with God in the process of our formation. And so the command to not be troubled and to trust, it makes us conscious of the unconscious patterns that we fall into, striving, distracting, resigning, Those things run our lives on autopilot until on a Sunday morning, Jesus says, stop, stop doing that. And then again, this isn't simple. This is terribly hard work requiring huge amounts of focus. In the earliest days of my therapeutic process with my spiritual director and counselor, Rich Plass, I remember him telling me over and over, the volcano would go off, the taper paper napkin would be obliterated. Everything within 20 feet of me would be obliterated in those early days. And Rich would just sit and let me melt down. And then he would remind me, listen, kiddo, you are doing the hard, hard work in your mid-30s. The work you're doing right now is some of the hardest work the human soul can do. And we will spend our whole lives growing in the practices of not letting our hearts be troubled and intentionally trusting. So let's ask this question. It's the one being begged through this entire sermon. How concretely do we do this? How do we concretely do this? How do we concretely turn from trouble and learn to trust? How do we concretely do that in our bodies? I personally have found no more effective way to actually live this out than combining prayer with our breathing in our bodies. Let's talk about breathing here for just a moment. In Genesis, the very beginning when Adam and Eva, dirt, earth, man, Adam, source of life, Eve, Eva, when they are created, what makes them human is God breathes his life into them. There's something so primal, something so primitive, so essence about just breathing to make us human. Breathing with awareness, though, as image bearers. Now, check this out. Biophysically, again, physiologically, and mentally, 
when we just take a breath into our bodies and we become aware of it, it draws our mental conscious awareness into the present moment of reality as it is. And in other words, when we breathe in and breathe out, and we're just focused on our breath. It diminishes the metaphorical tiger that our mind is reacting to, the metaphorical tiger of our past that we're running from that doesn't exist right now in that breath, and the metaphorical tiger that's coming after us in the future, whatever's giving us anxiety. In this breath, I'm sitting under a tent in South Park, San Diego, with all my friends talking about the Bible. There's no tiger coming after me right now. I'm safe with you. We're safe here in this breath. You see, that breathing moment just brings you into the present physical reality. And then that slow, focused breathing releases us from that fight, flight, freeze state. We literally transfer over. When you breathe in deeply, when you take a deep, would you guys just do this with me? Let's just do this. Take a, take a deep breath into your belly as deep as you can through your nose and then slowly release the air and feel the weight of your body sinking down into your chair. Biochemically, when we do that, you shift from that sympathetic state, fight, flight, freeze, resign, distract, to what they call the parasympathetic state. And your body shifts all of its hormones, and you go into a state of repose and a state of repair. Every time, every time you take in this deep breath, that's physically what happens. We shift the physiology. And so adding prayer to this focused breathing creates intentional, conscious, embodied states of trust. When we are in the moment, in our breath, aware of what's happening, and then we're praying in that moment with that breath being our focus, the physical trouble physically, biophysically eases, and we learn to trust. So for myself personally, I do this all day long now. I will breathe in, and I will slowly pray the word trust. Or I'll softly form the words around my breath, come Holy Spirit. Or Spirit, come, even more simply. And I will say that one of the most beneficial ways to use this particular practice of breath awareness and prayer is in the early mornings in solitude before the tigers begin chasing us through our day. Taking 10 or 20 or 30, if you can, building up to extended amounts of time every morning to learn to be still, and form our prayer around a word or a phrase, a verse of scripture from our reading that morning, what that does in the mornings is it creates an inoculating resilience against the onslaught of unconscious reactions that we will fall prey to through the day. It's like you almost have a platform of stillness to work from when those unconscious reactions start to take over. You're like, hmm, I can see that's beginning to happen now. I trust you, Father. Come, Holy Spirit. Note, for the theologians in the room, this is not the vain repetition of the words that Jesus warned against in prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. The pagans who do such things, they are striving in their anxiety to coerce God to do their will. That is not what we are doing. The practice of this kind of prayer-breathing, centering process is about embodying ourselves in the present moment and not being taken captive by the automatic reactions of our minds and our bodies. This prayer breathing, it gives us a moment every day with every breath of mental space to explore what is being threatened right now and turn to God in trust. It's a concrete practice of obedience to this command. Don't be troubled. Trust. Come Holy Spirit.
I know I sound like a broken record because this is so sensitive. I don't want to paint the picture that this is the answer to all of our emotional and mental health issues. <laughs> this generation is the most anxious and depressed we have ever seen. There are genuine chemical imbalances in certain souls. There are multitudes of other things to consider, nutrition, sleep hygiene, stress levels, the list goes on and on. We also have to factor in the spiritual side. There are horrifically cruel entities bent on destroying the human soul, and they love to stir up trouble in the heart and soul of God's people. And I recognize you are my church, and I hear your stories. There are people in our community right now that are enduring terribly, terribly troubling situations. And it would be dismissive and trite to say, well, breathe through it, and you'll be fine. Jesus knows the terribleness of our troubles, and yet his command remains here in John 14 as part of his departing words to us. This particular practice, this breathe trust, breathe pray, in the present moment, it is a slice of the healing pie. It puts us on the right path, but that journey is long and difficult. We, friends, have built up a lifetime. We have a lifetime of automatic and unconscious reaction patterns. Therefore, it's going to take the rest of our lives to rewire those neural patterns. And that is the miracle of the human body. We can rewire those neural patterns to where when the anxiety levels begin to rise, when the depression is taking over us, rather than unconsciously being taken captive to it, we can say... I trust you, Father. Right now, as I exhale, I let go of the things that I feel most threatened by, and I trust you. And our neurochemistry miraculously begins to heal. I'm telling you, the human body, it is, yes, we are praying for broken bones to be mended and cancer to be healed, but I'm telling you, every single day, your body, it is an incredible miracle. The more consistently that we actively engage kind of the miraculous mechanisms of our bodies that God has given to us through breath awareness and prayer, slowly but surely we experience what St. Paul called the peace that surpasses understanding. I feel like I'm a novitiate, a novice in this practice. I have been driven by the volcano my whole life. I'm 44. I have resigned myself, distracted myself. I have worked myself into the ground trying to mitigate against the metaphorical tigers that chase me all day long. And for the first time in my life, I find myself getting little glimpses of like, is this what it feels like to have the peace that surpasses understanding? Even five years ago, a rainy situation like this in the middle of a church plant would have had me losing my mind, losing it. And today I was like, trust. Today I was like, for the four people that show up and brave the weather, it's going to be awesome. And then here all of you guys are. Look at you. It's amazing. Let's wrap this up because it's not only his command. Remember, point number two, he commands and he promises. We must learn to replace the metaphorical tigers with his promises. And at the very root of Jesus' promise is his presence. I'm just going to read the text again. It's so good. 14, 2 to 3. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, what have I told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? <clears throat> and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Lots of work to do here. When Jesus refers to his father's house, 
for his good little Jewish boy disciples, they would have immediately have had the temple, the physical temple mount on their minds. The temple in Jewish theology was the meeting place between heaven and earth. It was the space where God's presence overlapped with human presence. And then on the exterior of the temple were multitudes of rooms in which supplies would be stored and temple servants would keep their quarters. Jesus was promising his disciples that he was going to prepare their rooms in the Father's house. For his disciples, that would have translated in their minds as, he is going to prepare a place for us who are not priests, a place in the presence of Yahweh. For them, it would have been category-breaking. So overwhelming. This leader of ours is going to make a place for us to be in the presence of Yahweh? It they, wouldn't have, they, they couldn't have even gotten their heads around it. And of course, we, the readers of John, we know completely what Jesus meant. That through his death and his physical, literal resurrection from the dead, Jesus would bring heaven and earth together again. He would repair the breach, and that he then would not create a physical temple, but that physical temple would be replaced with us, a community of people, rooms in which the Holy Spirit would dwell, stones fit together, becoming this living, breathing temple of God, food trucks of God's presence, as we've talked about in previous, dispersing his presence all throughout the land. And there is a lot. John, John is this ultra-sophisticated, mystical, circular author. And he's always layering meaning upon meaning throughout his entire gospel. And so the attentive reader here notices that Jesus says, I'm going somewhere and I will come back to get you. Commentators and scholars across the board, they've long seen this as Jesus' promise in reference to the last days of creation as we know it. The Bible says that Jesus will one day literally, physically return to earth as it is right now. And we, God's people, we take comfort in that promise. That all the earth will one day be covered in the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Every, every living creature will bow their knee before the king and say, you are Lord, and all will be well. But this isn't only a future comfort, it's for right now. Everything in John's theology of heaven and earth it exists in an already and not yet full context. So the promises that Jesus is making here are both for the future, the end of all things, and for right now. In just a few, in just a few verses, Jesus assures his disciples that he's not going to leave them as orphans. Because in verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In other words... Jesus' promise means that he would come to us in the presence of the Holy Spirit to help us presently. Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our abode with them. We will abide with them. We, they will become our room that we indwell together. We're going to do an entire series this summer called The Art of Abiding in John chapter 15, talking about all this stuff in detail. For this morning, as we wrap up, as we obey his command to turn from trouble and labor at trusting, the Father and the Son, they make their home with us by the Spirit right now, in this moment, right here, in this gathering, right now. Breathe. The Spirit is here. Now. 
And Jesus' promise is all about his presence. The remedy, my dear friend, again, not in a trite or a dismissive way, not without the help of therapy, not without the help of community, not without lifelong pattern transformation, but the remedy for all of the troubles of our hearts is intimate, experiential union with our God, mentally, physically, and spiritually. This is what remedies the trouble of our hearts. Have you guys ever watched parents with the little babies? Parents with a child that has been scared. What do they do? They go after the child. They draw the child in. And then they speak to that child with gentle tones and command. They say, it's all right now. It's okay. The trouble is over. They'll command, stop crying. I'm here with you. I'm right here. And Jesus' command and Jesus' promise, that is his presence coming to us saying, it's okay. Stop crying. I'm here with you. I'm right here. And he's drawing us into his presence. In, in the midst of the anxiety attack, Jesus is present. I can only say this because of my own struggles with depression for so many years. In the depth of the darkest depression and at the apex of our fear, we can hear Jesus say, I do not want you to be troubled Stop being troubled. Trust that I'm here with you, that I'm in you, and one day I will rule perfectly everywhere. Because that moment of trust is the reuniting of heaven and earth as the new temple. And our troubles, bit by bit, millimeter by millimeter, nanosecond after nanosecond, moment after moment, breath after breath of breathing, trusting, resting, releasing, in the midst of all of it, our troubles are assuaged by our eternal, eternal union with God. And so as our hearts become more and more his, and as he becomes more and more our security and our satisfaction, I'm so sorry about that tent dumping water all over you guys. <laughs> as he becomes our security and satisfaction, even if the tigers of this world take everything from us, even if the... Even if the tigers of this world take our very lives, and this is the radical commitment of his disciples, you and I and the first century disciples, even if there are physical tigers that are going to come and take our lives, peace. Breathe. Don't you know that that death will finally unify you with him and that is all the safety and security and provision that you need? But to believe that, you got to get it into your body, friend. You can't just pretend like this mental ascent to, I believe that, and then living ridden with anxiety is the way that Jesus would have us to live. It's just not. Our rooms have been prepared by his sacrifice, and that is his promise. The way into God's presence has been made. He has made his abode with us. And so let me close by asking you as we come to communion, reflect on this. What is troubling you right now? And now hear the words of Jesus. Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust God. Trust Jesus. Breathe that in. Pray that in. Live in this present moment of his promise, his presence here, and live in light of the future promise of his presence universally.
Father, as we prepare this morning now to remember your sacrifice that has prepared a place for us, I pray that this little community of people would do the hard, hard work, the mental, emotional hard work of coming into the present moment, being in this present moment and feeling their bodies, not distracting from what's going on in their bodies and letting you peel away the layers of anxiety and depression, fear and concern. Jesus, your commands are so kind and so gentle and so wise. I pray that you would give relief this morning. Relief. Just even the briefest breath of relief to the one who has come in here war-torn and ragged, beat up and uncertain, beat down and bewildered. May they breathe in. May they breathe in life. May they breathe in spirit. Their breath is not a mistake. There is no condemnation. They are not in trouble. They have not fallen off of God's will. Your love has not ran out for them. I pray for the one this morning who the social anxiety is just crippling. That for just the briefest moment, here they would breathe in and on that exhale, their biochemistry would just take up a, a posture of repose. And that they would know that's normal Christianity and that that's the gift God gives. Whatever, whatever is causing the anxiety, whatever threat, may they just let it go let it die. I do want to pray for the friend struggling this morning, enduring the weeks and years of depression. Somehow, someway, God makes sense of these crippling things that we can't make sense of, and you have to breathe and trust that. And then, Father, collectively, before we come to communion, the church has been so troubled by the racial strife the political insanity, plague, Twitter feeds, and news feeds that just rack our minds and bodies with terror. I pray that this morning there would just be a breath of relief from that, a sense of the kingdom come, a quietness in the people of God, a settledness, and that you would grant us that resilience and inoculate us to the, the virus of anxiety. I think that's maybe the more dangerous plague in our day. Inoculate us to the virus of anxiety, that we would live as that non-anxious presence, a people of peace, where social and racial and political strife is mended and healed, and we together, as brothers and sisters, Mexican and Asian and black and white, rich and poor, from that side of town and this side of town, from every point and place all across the city and all across the globe, 
Unite once again your church in the peace of Jesus. May the peace of Jesus reign and rule in the hearts of your people. And if this morning, if it's just for the briefest breath, may it be so full of peace that that soul would say, I make that my life's pursuit, to pursue that peace for every breath that I take until I see the King. Come, Lord Jesus, fill this temple with your spirit. Come, Lord Jesus, fill this city with your spirit. We obey your command. We declare we will not be troubled. We will trust. May we see you ever more present. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all stand with me? And Michael will lead us in song. Matt will come and lead us in a communion meditation here in just a moment.